knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned, there's not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Due to today's subject matter, some of the things discussed on this episode may not be appropriate for some of our younger listeners. Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Ashley Glassick, and this is our first week out on our own. And hopefully, at this recording, I do not have the website completely <laughs> set up and linked at theologygals.com, but I'm hoping... Uh, when you hear this, that you can find it at theologygals.com. Okay. I think we've been going for a year. Yes, we have. It's it's kind of cool. We stayed on the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network for a year, and now starting our second year, mm -hmm. we're out on our own. So that's really exciting to yeah. kind of pass the, the year mark and even get yeah. past 50 episodes. It's hard to even, like, believe that we made yes. it this far. I know. It's been it's been exciting though. We've I feel like we've covered a lot of ground in one year. Yeah. And and you know what's happening too is that I constantly am getting people or you'll see in the group people will say, "Can you talk can you guys do an episode about this?" And so I have an in this growing list of topics and there's there's just so much. In fact, today's topic came out of somebody posting in the group, "Can you talk about purity culture?" And that's when I, I had heard Rebecca on my friend's podcast, Virtue in the Wasteland. And so I contacted her and I said, hey, will you come on our podcast? Because she's really done so much work for being such a young woman. She really has so much wisdom and has thought this through way more than I have. <laughs> I'm like yeah, over twice her age. <laughs> when you mentioned doing this topic, I didn't even know exactly what you were talking about. So I, this is going to be very enlightening for me because I really don't know a lot about this. 
Yeah, for me, I was fairly familiar with it in homeschool circles. It's very big in homeschool circles. And I think primarily just my oldest was exposed to some of it. He actually went to like the purity classes or something at uh, a local church with a friend from homeschool co-op. Their church did it and did the whole purity ring and everything like that. But we, from the beginning, there were certain things that we were like, you know, like I kiss dating goodbye or courtship where my husband and I were like, mm, not exactly sure how that's going to work. Right. Yeah. And I, I did have the purity ring. That, that was about all I knew about this is that there's a ring involved. <laughs> yeah. So I had the ring and I wore it until I was married. So yeah. So are you, are you supposed to wear that on your, um, on like the same finger you wear your wedding ring or do you wear it on the other hand? If I'm remembering correctly, I wore it on the other hand. Okay. And I've heard, I think you're supposed to give it to your husband when you get married as like a, I don't think I did that. I, I just think I, I just think I wore it for a while. And then we're going to talk to Rebecca about a lot of those things. And since it's a long interview, we won't do a yeah about that um, today. But you can find us now at theologygals.com, all of our episodes. You, if you're subscribed to us, just you can continue to scribe, subscribe at the same place that you always did. And you'll still find us everywhere that you could find us before, just a different website. So, and we are linking a lot on this episode, so definitely check out the episode notes. So I guess we'll go to the interview now. And we are back with Rebecca Lemke. And Rebecca, just before we kind of dive into our subject today, could you share a little bit about yourself for those who are not familiar with you? Absolutely. So I am a 21-year-old housewife and mother. I grew up in a really tiny kind of Christian fundamentalist homeschool group community, um, and they highly valued purity and modesty, um, sometimes over and above Christ. And as I grew up, I dealt with the ramifications of that, and I saw my friends deal with the ramifications of that. And I took a much different path than a lot of people did with this, um, which led me to write a book. Um, and that's that's kind of the stage in life I'm at now is um, is going on different podcasts with the book and writing articles for different websites and doing speaking engagements and things like that, which is really crazy because I actually wrote the book just for a few friends that I grew up with. Well, and I w one thing um, we always in our episodes do a lot of resources and there's actually several of your podcast episodes I'm going to link oh. in our episode notes but I would like you just real quick to tell everyone about your book and I will also link your book in the episode notes too Sure. So my book is called The Scarlet Virgins, and it basically talks a lot about kind of what I went through and what I saw growing up. Um, some of the content for those who may be triggered by sexual assault is difficult to get through. Um, I did see quite a bit of that growing up. Um, and there was certain traumatic factors that it made it even worse um, at the time. But I, I talk about um, the ramifications of just 
the teachings like your purity and your virginity are essentially the same thing and the saying that you need to stay pure quote unquote until you're married um and um i also talk about just how it affects the way we see ourselves and how it affects the way we see god yeah and we're gonna we're definitely gonna dive into some of those things a little bit later on because i think one thing i have learned is that it's have had a devastating effect on on people that went through a sexual abuse that grew up in those circles where they i hear from women all the time that if they were abused and they felt even that they were impure yeah. that mm -hmm. they felt that men wouldn't want them yeah. so well let's for some people that are not familiar why don't we just start off with talking about what is purity culture because i think a lot of our listeners will know exactly what we're talking about but some in in our group when we had a discussion some people said i don't know what this is yeah all right so there's actually two branches i i personally believe of what people think of when they think about purity culture um if they've brushed up against it at all one of them i have termed the purity movement and the other i've termed purity culture just to make it easier for everyone um Basically, the first branch, the purity movement branch, actually came about from high teen pregnancy rates. And I believe it was the 90s, um, maybe the 80s, where the government actually funded some of the organizations that were, quote unquote, purity culture organizations, even if they were Christian, to help bring down teen pregnancy rates because they were so high. Um, so there's kind of this secular aspect to the movement where it was just this practical as a society, we need to get our crap together and make sure that all these babies aren't happening out of wedlock. Um, and on the other hand, you have purity culture, which is what I grew up in. And it is characterized by things like hand-holding, hugging, kissing, all being the moral equivalent of having had premarital sex. Um, you were supposed to wait to do all of those things until you were married. Um, there was also a degree to which there was quote-unquote emotional STDs at play, which meant that if you had a crush, you were, if, if you did not marry that person, you were carrying an emotional STD into your marriage. You gave a piece of your heart away to that person, even if you'd never got into a relationship, just by being physically attracted to them. And so you have all of these people um, being encouraged to marry their first crush, or you have arranged marriages before you even get to that age where the people kind of know who they're going to be marrying. And so they kind of try to deter it that way. But that's that's the sort of thing that I talk about um, and what I mean when I say purity culture. I just wanted to add that some people might be confused, like, wait, isn't purity a good thing? That's a biblical thing. Right. That's, that's not what – we're not talking about like actual biblical – purity here. We're talking no. about kind of this very different subculture that kind of went too far. Yeah. Yeah. And um, as a as an aside from that, my husband and I did wait um, for obviously sex and um, a little bit more than that. We did do hand-holding, hugging, kissing, things like that. Um, but we really waited um, for anything major um, for the wedding. Um, and so that is part of the reason why I spoke up because all of the people that I saw speaking out about purity culture didn't and they didn't have 
that sort of credibility or respect mm-hmm. for purity, um, which I think is a shame um, because it, it is so terrible that purity culture and purity are just such a mixed thing. So, so people who were, you know, in this purity culture mm-hmm. swung too far to the other direction where they're yes. completely throwing out purity. Yeah, Justin Magna and I actually talked about that, and we called it uh, the counter purity movement. The, just the mm-hmm. it's this completely hedonistic, licentious movement that is kind of into sex positivity, but it's more just do everything possible, even if you're not comfortable with it, and even if it's not morally right, because you can. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I want to actually. <laughs> that's one of the episodes that. I am going to link and I I'm going to tell our listeners, go listen to that, because I think that that episode is so important. And you guys talk kind of about this overcorrection where they're um, in response to purity culture. They're going too far in another direction. That's not biblical. Yeah. And I think I think that's an important point that you make. And I'm kind of wondering, are you familiar at all? back in the 80s, when I was a teenager, was the Josh McDowell Why Wait? I went to the Why Wait conference. Did that play into it at all? (laughs) Um, So I was not alive in the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I have heard of Josh McDowell. Um, I think that the biggest uh, literature at the time when I was growing up and what impacted us the most was things like Bill Gothard's teachings, um, Joshua Harris's I Survived, or not I Survived, I Kissed Saying Goodbye, I Survived, I Kissed Saying Goodbye is his documentary that's coming out. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was like things like Joshua Harris's book, uh, things like Bill Gothard's teachings, and uh, The Bride Wore White, The Princess and the Kiss, things like that were very popular when I was young. And I think that they were a spinoff and an addition to the older um, literature. Yeah. And I think there was a lot in Josh McDowell stuff. I don't, re- it's been a long time since <laughs> I went to that conference, but I don't remember some of these things. Although somebody gave me a book probably around 1991 and said, can you read this and let me know what you think? And in that book, it actually said that holding hands when you intertwine your fingers or a guy running his finger through a girl's hair is equivalent to intercourse. <gasps> oh, uh-huh. boy. <laughs> and I, so she said somebody had given her this book and she was kind of in a little bit of a crazy church. So I, I'm not I don't think it was a widely circulated book. Yeah. And um, and I said, no, this is not <laughs> this is not something that I think is good. I'm honestly surprised I never heard that growing up because that was that would the kind of thing we heard. I just never specifically heard those things. Wow. <laughs> so can you talk about some of the negative the negative things that were within the purity culture? Sure. So all of these things stem from sort of self-hatred um, and I would say some hatred and angst towards God as well. Um, because if you do not have a good understanding of yourself and what healthy sexuality looks like, then you kind of de facto in some ways do not understand the creator of sexuality and of yourself. Um, And so all of these things that I'm about to list out come from that. They come from not having a healthy understanding of God's gifts, not having a healthy understanding of God, and not having a healthy understanding of yourself. The things that 
I saw and my friends saw growing up in this were things like sexual aversion disorder after marriage, where um, the woman basically can get up to intercourse and be fine. But as soon as intercourse is engaged in, you can basically pass out. You can have um, dis disassociations where you don't know who you are. You don't know where you are. You don't know what's going on. Um, you can have where she, like her body physically shuts down and tries to shut the man out, um, essentially. And um, you can have all sorts of things like that with sexual aversion disorder. And that is from basically learning that sex is bad and then not being able to flip the switch. Um, mm -hmm. The other things um, in the spiritual realm are spiritual apostasy, because if sex we know is good, um, if we are healthy and holistic, we know it's good. Um, when we do not know that, um, then obviously God created sex, but he said that everything he made was good. So there's a disconnect there. And with all these rules, is God really good? These seem kind of unreasonable, some of them. Um, is he really a reasonable God and things like that? And so you get this disconnect with wh who God says he is and the rules and the ramifications of those rules. So you end up having these young people, um, whether they consciously do it or not, saying, um, I cannot marry these two ideas of who God is and sex being good. Um, and I, I really feel like I would rather choose if, if I have to make the choice between God and a good sex life, I'm going to choose the good sex life, or I'm going to choose to not have to, to carry this burden of legalism if if God is really this way. So you have spiritual apostasy coming out of that where people say, well, I can't reconcile what I've been taught with a good loving God. So therefore I'm going to leave the faith, even though it's much messier than that when it happens. Um, you also have just from the uh, self-hatred of I'm a bad person because I feel attracted to that person or, you know, I am a bad person because I dress modestly and I still got hurt. So that must mean that I didn't dress modestly enough. Therefore, it's my fault. Um, and so you have self-hatred from that as well. You can get things like um, addiction to various substances, um, including sexual addiction. You can have alcoholism. I actually have several friends who are um, alcoholic. Alcoholics, um, and they were alcoholics very young. I'm talking 13, 14. Um, you also have um, self harm, which I I allude to in my book. Essentially, I had a specific form that kind of came out for me where it was uh, directed towards basically secondary sex characteristic type stuff um, because I was so angry um, with my body for being a temptation to my male friends. Um, but uh, several of my friends do have issues with other types of self harm and things like that. You also have suicide, um, which I in my experience, has not been a rare thing. Um, most of my friends and I have gone through at least two suicide attempts apiece. Um, and these, my first one was at 12 years old. Um, so you have things like that. You also have eating disorders, which is another thing that I personally struggled with. Um, basically, the mindset and the way it sort of weaved itself in for me was that I had a basis of a couple family members also having eating disorders. So I, I kind of, I didn't mimic their behavior because I didn't really know at the time, but I was around that and kind of steeped in that. And then what happened with 
purity culture was it put me in this place where um, we were not allowed to try to be attractive. So we were not allowed to wear makeup. Some of us were actually not allowed like basic self-care things like brushing your hair, brushing your teeth because you may be too tempting to boys um, and things like that. And I as as things progressed, I was not allowed to wear sandals because one of the dads had a foot fetish. Um, our clothing was heavily regulated even up until and after turning 18, things like that. And so I went, okay, I don't have control over what I wear. I don't have control over whether or not I'm sexually assaulted or not. I don't have control over, you know, all these different things in my life. Um, there were other things, obviously, but I didn't have control of that. And so I went, okay, well, I this crush of mine that I'm waiting for because he's my first crush, I want him to say, wow, you're gorgeous on the wedding night. So I starved myself um, because that was the only thing I had control over. So I said, you know, I won't be able to choose what I wear. I might not even be able to choose a pretty wedding dress. But when we get to the wedding night and I am skinny, he'll probably really love that. And so I went from 105 pounds to 82 pounds um, within a matter of two or three months as a 12 year old. And, um, I ended up experiencing some organ issues, lungs, heart. Um, my skin grew white hair all over, um, to try to keep me warm. I was freezing all the time. Um, I am still dealing with the ramifications of, uh, what happened, um, in the two years that led after that. Um, but those are the kinds of things that you get in this culture where it's heavily legalistic and it really messes with your identity and with God's identity. And this is, this is all because, I mean, you're, you're only taught that, that sex is a bad thing. Like there's yeah. no, there's never a mention of sex is good, but only within the confines of marriage. Like that was never, mm -hmm. A discussion at all like um that I, it can be good you just <laughs> not right now <laughs> it's it was sort of this uh sex is dirty so you should save it for your spouse thing um <laughs> that was that was essentially what we were told uh we were never told that sex was not dirty it was just this is something you need to wait for until marriage and i think there was lip service paid to sex being good but there was never the conviction behind that statement that there was for sex is dirty. And the amount that we heard sex is dirty, it was a conviction behind it was about, I would say, unhyperbolically 99%. Mm -hmm. And the time that we heard the opposite was less than 1%, I would say. Um, so while there was lip service paid to it, it, it had... It was more of a culture of sex being bad. So even if they said, oh, sex is good, everyone acted as though it was bad. Mm. Okay. One thing Ashley and I were talking about is, and some of the girls in our group were saying, is that there was this idea that men are these uncontrollable animals. And when you get married, um, you might not like sex that much, but you just need to submit to it for your husband's sake because he's going to need it. Yeah. Is that some of what is in that sort of culture? Yes, absolutely. I actually, um, I heard this as well. Um, and something I will say is just that I think this is very damaging <laughs> um, because 
it it fuels the idea that men don't have self-control, which is something I was also taught, and that women don't have sex drives and don't they don't really get anything out of sex. And it, I think even for those of us who recognize that that's wrong <laughs> and that that's not a correct teaching, it still puts sort of this rock in the shoe of doubt that is my husband really a reasonable person? Because if he's an animal and can't control how he is or, you know, just kind of loses his mind um, when he's ready for sex, that's a little scary. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it builds this divide between a husband and wife, and it makes it hard to respect the man. And it sort of makes sex almost this manipulated thing where even if the woman did previously want it, then now she feels kind of like she's being used. Um, even if the man doesn't personally put that on her, um, and I've seen this play out so many times where some spouses don't even recognize that this has happened and that they're laboring under this for years into marriage. Um, and they, the woman doesn't get enjoyment out of it. And the man is frustrated because they don't seem to be connecting all because they were taught this, even if they didn't absorb it. You know, one thing I wanted to mention real quick, because um, I think I think your experience is probably more extreme than what <laughs> some people have maybe grown up in, although there's people that have a very similar experience to you. But one thing we should mention is that there is kind of different ex extremes within this, where uh -huh. you some like Ashley and I were talking previously where some of the, we were exposed to some of these things, maybe not to the extent others were. And I know some people were exposed to some aspects of it, but not, not all mm -hmm. aspects of it. But yeah, I just wanted to mention that. I mean, honestly, when we started, once we started talking about this, I was like, oh, I had no idea. Like I, <laughs> I, I thought purity culture meant like purity rings. That's, that's what I thought we were talking about. And then <laughs> once I, once I started hearing the stories from the women in our group, I was like, oh, we're not talking about just wearing a ring until you're yeah. married. Like this is, it goes way, way past that. So this yeah. was very eye opening to me that, that it's just a, a subculture within Christianity. I I had I knew nothing about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty it's pretty interesting to me to see the different tiers of severity and kind of how the different uh, the different ramifications come out of those tiers. Um, because I think that even the lesser damaging tiers are still so interesting with what comes out of it, just based on itty bitty things that you wouldn't think that would be bad. Yeah. Yeah, de definitely. Well, I think you've kind of already touched on some of the things which have resulted because of it, but is there mm -hmm. anything else? I mean, you, we've talked about the counter purity movement and some of the struggles that that people have had. Um, are there any other things which have kind of resulted because of this? Well, I mentioned this a little bit before, um, but I've I've termed this um, an eternal paternal identity crisis, essentially. And it's just that because our, I think this is the most damaging, maybe, um, spiritually at least, of what happens in purity culture. And it's that, you know, 
we as Christians um, and as fallen human beings, you know, we understand that our our earthly dads are earthly dads, and we look to our heavenly Father for the perfection and the eternal fathering that we need. But with purity culture, and, and this is something that I've been studying recently, there's something called the RK selection theory. And it essentially really has to do with the father's role in a girl's life and how she acts sexually. So if you have, you know, a kind of a deadbeat dad or an abusive dad or a neglectful dad, whatever, um, oftentimes that can epigenetically shift the daughter into a role of the world is not safe. There is a lot of scarcity. Therefore, I need to have a lot of babies um, to be able to carry on my genetics. And of course, this is a scientific thing. I don't get into the evolutionary side of it um, because I'm, I'm a creationist. Um, but I do think that there is some truth to that. And so if you have a stable father, then you have it selecting for the K selection, which is one spouse, lifelong monogamy, that sort of thing. And I think what we see in purity culture is while there should be stability, and even if there's not stability in the home, we have stability of a fatherly type in Christ and in, well, in God. And um, when we have that um, that loss of God being a good God and somebody that we can rely on for the fathering that we can't get on earth, I think we have more of these girls being are selected. And I don't think that we even realize it because I think that they don't actively go after sexual experiences like you might think with, you know, just a, a normal high school girl from a public school or whatever that's not Christian. Um, and so I think that it's unintentionally our selecting our girls and it's not in the same way as you would normally see it. I think that it sets them up because of the way our worth is tied to our virginity to end up being easy targets for sexual assault. Mm. And then once that sexual assault happened, it's, well, I'm worthless now. And so they end up sleeping with more guys because they think that they're worthless. And I think that that's, that's one of the newest um, theories that I'm toying with, um, with the ramifications of purity culture. But I do think that there's a lot of truth to it. And I had mentioned to you, Rebecca, before um, about what Scott Keith um, yeah. said, said when he was on our podcast um, about his book, Being Dad, Father is a Picture of God's Grace, that it's kind of an accepted view that mm -hmm. um, our view of God is very tied to our fathers mm -hmm. and our um, experience with our fathers. And it would be interesting to see how all of that kind of ties together. Yeah. Um, one of the things you mentioned earlier was you felt like purity was discussed more than Christ. Mm -hmm. How did that play out like in like the church? Like, did you guys have youth group so, kind of thing or? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so the crazy thing about all of this is I grew up in a tiny LCMS Lutheran church in um, a tiny town close to Enid. 
and that church never did anything to me. <laughs> um, I had the most wonderful, amazing pastor growing up, and I he was completely balanced on law and gospel. Um, he was very gracious. Uh, I could go talk to him about basically anything, especially as a teenager. I talked to him a lot, um, <clears throat> and he taught me. He, he basically set the stepping stones for me to be able to escape purity culture. But oh, interesting. Yeah, the thing so this was, wasn't this wasn't played out at the church level. This was just a this was a community like, thing. community thing. In your, yeah, okay. Was it in a homeschool community? It's a little bit complicated. Yes, there was uh, there was a couple homeschool communities that we were a part of that kind of gave little pieces of the puzzle throughout my life. Um, and there was also some church groups that I went to with my friends because how I basically got really involved with the homeschool group was my church didn't really have a lot of kids. Um, because it was a tiny farm community and people, all the kids were either older or younger than me. And so I didn't have a lot of friends at church. And um, when my mom pulled me out of uh, public school in kindergarten and said, hey, we're homeschooling you, I had church once a week and I had the homeschool group. Mm -hmm. So my my socialization was basically entirely through the homeschool group in terms of my peer groups and ideas and things like that, except for what my pastor was saying. And at that age and with the way that my homeschooling communities and the, their churches were, their churches were very authoritative. They said everything as though it was absolute gospel truth. And so did the homeschooling community. And it was whether it was a theological issue, a social issue, what have you. And so my pastor preaches the word of God exactly as it is every single week. And all of these other people are flashy and they have garage bands that they play during service and all this different stuff. And so they were quote unquote cooler and they seemed to have more of an idea of what was going on. And they seemed more solid in their faith because of how they acted. And so I was drawn to that because my parents were such that, um, they were Christian, but they just didn't have what I felt like was a lot of conviction. They weren't, they weren't passionate about it. Um, and you know, it, I saw, I, I got to see them be like, Oh, I wish we could sleep in and stuff like that. And so that really drove me to trust the homeschool group and those communities more than it did my home church, even though the church that I grew up in was more stable. Hmm. Um, so I, I did go to some youth group activities with other churches where they did do purity pledges and they did, you know, pass a note around the room or whatever, gave every kid a note and they had to fill out whether they had ever had sex or not and things like that. So I was exposed to that, but it was a lot less than what my peers were exposed to. So how, how does um, growing up in purity culture follow people into their marriages? Well, I've mentioned uh, the sexual aversion disorder. That's I don't know how many people end up having that because it's I don't think it's on a lot of people's radar. And it, a lot of folks don't want to go to a counselor or a doctor to be diagnosed with anything or to get help because it's, it's such a shameful thing to not be able to um, have sex correctly in our culture, basically, because it's supposed to be easy. I mean, teenagers in the back of the car can pull it off. Why can't we, right? And so um, I think that there's a lot of just sexual shame that comes that with both, you know, having been taught that sex is a sin, not being able to flip that switch and not be fine. Um, and then whatever happens after that, where you continue to try and continue to fail, and then you don't want to seek out help because 
you know, sex should be easy and it's supposed to be this wonderful thing on your honeymoon that it's just the best thing ever. And when that doesn't happen, we're disappointed and we feel like we've let our spouse down and things like that. So there's a lot of fear and shame. Um, one thing that I've talked about before is that I was pretty darn terrified of my husband <laughs> um, on the honeymoon because I was taught that men don't have self-control and that was reinforced through all of the assaults that I saw that it was the girl's fault. And um, the story in my book, um, this was what really hit it home and where I said, okay, something's wrong because she was sexually assaulted by her brother. And it was still her fault. She still should have dressed differently. She should have not sassed him or whatever it was that they thought brought that on. She should have not done that. And so even though my husband had been just this pinnacle of gentleness and self-control and all of that before we got married, as soon as we walked through the door at home, I was like, I am going to get hurt today. This is terrible. What's going to happen? Is he going to hurt me? Um, and it was awful. It was awful because I trusted him, and up until that point, I had been completely comfortable. But as soon as sex was on the table, it was, oh my gosh, is he going to hurt me? And so there was this big divide between my husband and I because of what I was taught in purity culture about the way men operated and that they didn't have self-control. It was, oh, he sees a little bit of shoulder and you're down. <laughs> like That's terrible. Um, and also, one of the things that I've seen – in the majority of cases has been an identity crisis upon getting married where um, as soon as you have sex or even attempt to have sex, your entire identity changes because it's been in being pure. And the way that this comes about from what I've seen is the phrase, um, stay pure until you're married, which the logical conclusion of that is you're not pure after you get married. And so, you know, we go into marriage pure, and then as soon as we try to have sex, even though we waited, and even though it's in marriage, and that's a good thing, we're completely different people now. Mm -hmm. We are, you know, all these different derogatory terms that I could list out that, you know, we heard our parents say about the girls sleeping around in high school, um, even though we didn't do anything wrong. Hmm. And so instead of, instead of having our identity in Christ and, um, knowing that that is sex is a good gift from him, the focus gets shifted to, I am now dirty. I am now damaged. I am now a depetaled flower or whatever the analogy was that you heard. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's one of the most common ramifications and ways that this has followed people into marriage. Wow. What, what would be a better way to phrase that? Because stay pure until you're married. That almost sounds like something I might have said before <laughs> and <laughs> not not realizing. So right. how, how would you say that better, uh, you know? I think that I'm not even sure how I would say it better, um, but I think that the focus really needs to be just that we can't be pure on our own. Like purity goes way beyond sexuality. It, it really should filter into every aspect of our life, right? And since we are imperfect people, even if we wait, even if we don't have a crush or anything like that, um, before we get married, we're still not pure of our own. The only thing that makes us pure is Christ and his sacrifice for us. So I think that that's where we need to start and we need to say, you know, you in Christ are purified by his action and because of that, 
because of the gratefulness and the love that he has shown to you, the gratefulness on your part and the love he has shown to you, you need to honor your body. And this is what that looks like. And, and come about it that way, where it's not, I'm demanding this of you. It's, you have been given a wonderful gift, mm-hmm. a gift that you do not deserve. And in light of that gift, this is how we as Christians ought to act. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. I guess we can get into, and I'm sure you've given this a ton of thought, <laughs> is <laughs> how do we if purity culture went too far in the wrong direction and if people are overcorrecting going, you know, too far in the other direction, how do we actually teach our children to think about sex biblically? Yeah. So I am not an expert by any means on this because my child is almost three. Um, So we have not gotten to the stage where what I teach him is tested yet. Um, So, you know, take this however you may, but my, conviction on the matter is that we need to teach our children about boundaries very early on. Um, And that's something that I've done with my son where it's, if you don't want to hug, I ain't going to hug you. And nobody else is going to hug you either. I'll make sure of that. Um, So that he knows that he does, like it's his body. um, And while the doctor may have to look at it, or I might have to change his diaper, for the most part, just because of his age, you know, there's some, there's some contingencies, but for the most part, you get a say in what happens to you. And I already see the difference in my childhood at this age versus his childhood because of that. Um, He is such a calmer child because of that. I was terrified all the time when I was younger because there were relatives that I didn't like. There were other people at other places at church, not at my church, but at other churches on vacation and things like that where I was very uncomfortable around a person and I was forced to hug them or they kissed me and my parents didn't say anything or didn't stop them. And so I can already see he's so much more confident about his body, about what he can and can't do, about what other people can and can't do to him. So I think that starting out and framing it as boundaries is a good thing because then you can build on that and say, you know, boundaries are a good thing because God made them. When he made the world, he set boundaries. He set boundaries where the sky and the sea met. He set boundaries on how far the sea went up onto the land. He set boundaries with Adam and Eve where they couldn't eat of the fruit of the tree. He sets boundaries with us with the Ten Commandments where, you know, you shouldn't, you should love your neighbor as yourself and, and you should uh, respect God and things like that. And you should not have sex before you're married and not cheat on your, on your spouse. And so I think that the boundaries is a really good foundation for that, where it's anything good has boundaries. God, everything that God made, anything good has boundaries, whether it's boundaries in the physical world, whether it's boundaries in relationships, um, things like that. And so I think you build on that as they get older. Right now, um, I have taught my son that I've, he, he knows anatomy. He knows anatomy better than I did when I was 16. That's 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 the extent of this. Um, he knows uh, all of his body parts. He knows basic uh, anatomy and reproductive system of females, um, and he can say it correctly. Um, and part of that was just uh, prudence. Um, if he would ever, God, God forbid, be sexually assaulted, um, that he could tell me what happened. But um, I think that 
empowering him to know his own body that God's given him. That's a good thing is part of it. And I think that the boundaries is part of it. But I also think that as he gets older, we'll be teaching him, you know, there are there are earthly consequences to if you violate these boundaries. This doesn't mean that you're cursed for the rest of your life or anything like that. And this these shouldn't necessarily be the reason you wait. But anytime you violate God's boundaries, generally there tends to be earthly and spiritually consequences to it. And I think that's how we're going to approach the conversation with him. Um, and something else that I have thought about as well is, uh, my parents gave me a book for sex ed and it was like a really, really juvenile book. Like <laughs> it was for children much younger than us. We did not really get a good sex education of any sort. Um, it was, it was basically probably for kids a little bit older than my son. <laughs> and we were 14 when we got the book. So, um, we didn't really get that. I didn't know my anatomy until well after I was married. Um, and so, with that, my mom kind of sent the message of sex is shameful, so we're not going to talk about it, but here's a book. And for me, coming out of that culture, my propriety sensor is so messed up that I'm like, you can ask me anything and I'll explain it the best I can. And I'm not going to get read. I probably don't have um, the appropriate shame sensors of talking about it just because I know how damaging that is. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I don't think that it's wrong to be embarrassed when you're talking to your child about sex. Um, but I do think it's important um, if you are somebody who gets embarrassed that you tell them, you know, this is the reason why I get embarrassed. Um, it's not that sex is shameful. It's that it's a private matter of dignity and propriety. Um, and that's why, that's why I have the reaction I do. It's not me trying to impress upon you that we should never talk about it it's just that it is a very delicate subject mm -hmm. um and that's that's kind of where i've come to with that so you know boundaries building on those boundaries and then you know anytime you do talk about it just make sure that you're not broadcasting a sense of shame about it mm -hmm. one thing that we've really emphasized with with our children is is the because i think in purity culture a lot of a lot of the motivation to not have sex before marriage was was negative. So yes. don't have sex before marriage because you could get pregnant because you could get an STD. Because if you have sex before marriage, then um, you're going to be impure and nobody will want you. No man will want you and, and these sorts of things. But we've mm -hmm. really tried to um, instill in our children that sex is this wonderful thing that God has created for within marriage. Yeah. And it's something to look forward to. It's it's a it's a good thing. But one thing mm -hmm. I would like you to talk about, because I think this is so, so important, and that is that a lot of girls in our group were saying, and some gals that talked to me, mm -hmm. is that this impurity that happens if you have sex before marriage mm -hmm. is is almost apart from Christ. Almost mm -hmm. um and I know you know what I'm saying, but there's this, um, if it, for the girl that um, does end up having sex before marriage, or maybe she becomes a Christian later, I heard from one of those, and and she has a, uh, you know, she has a promiscuous past where she um, feels like there, that there's this impurity, and it's like there's, it's like the one thing that Christ can't cover, 
there's yeah. almost that sort of of idea and and also and we heard from some of these gals that were sexually assaulted and felt like they were impure and would be unwanted because of that even. Yeah. So I have seen that as well, um, especially when it comes to sexual assaults. Um, but what I will say is this. I think for the ladies who have had a past before they were Christian, even who have had a past while they're Christian, things like that, one of the most one of the things that angers me to no end is that purity culture tries to limit what God can cover. Um, obviously we shouldn't go have sex and obviously people should not assault us. Assaults are not our fault. Um, that's not something that we can control. And, you know, even, even with the, even with the having sex outside of marriage thing, that is something if you repent that God can cover. I, I've never understood why sex is just the ultimate thing that, oh, God can create the universe, but he can't forgive you for that. I don't understand that, it, but I've, I've seen it so much. And I, it makes me so angry with the girls who are assaulted too, because that's absolutely that does not change your identity. That does not change your worth. Um, And the only reason that it did for so many of us was because we were taught that we were outside of Christ, that our identity was outside of Christ. That's absolutely not appropriate. You have every right to be upset about it. You have every right to mourn that you were taught that. You have every right to mourn your sexual assault. You have every right to mourn your past. But at the end of the day, we are forgiven. We are in Christ. And nothing, not a sexual assault, not death can change that we are loved and forgiven by Christ. Yeah, I think that's that's so important. And I hope any of you ladies out there who were in that situation have heard that. And I, I love what you said about finding our identity in Christ and not outside of Christ, because I think that's really um what's happened with this, where this is this one thing where you find your identity in, in what you've done or what has happened to you instead of finding your identity in Christ. Yeah. Well, we asked in our, we brought this up in our group as we sometimes do and asked some of the gals, what are some things that you would like us to talk about? And so I'd like to just kind of bring some of those up. and. Uh, one of the girls asked, how can we balance an admonition to remain chaste and the blessed hope of redemption, even in this world? Which I think we kind of did talk about that a little bit. But if you have anything else to add on that. I'm not entirely sure what the question is actually asking. <laughs> I know. Actually, I was, I was just thinking that. Yeah. Um. I think I think what she's asking is, how can we encourage our our kids and others to remain chaste, to to keep marriage with, to keep sex within marriage, mm -hmm. um, but also emphasizing the gospel so that when there are failures that, um, that Christ has forgiven us. And I think almost maybe what she's saying is how do we, um, how do we balance those without becoming legalistic or antinomian in right. our encouragement? Right. Well, for the, for the matter of, you know, 
of remaining chaste, I think the best thing that we can do, and this is probably going to be a major letdown um, if you're expecting something, you know, amazing, but I think the best thing that we can do to sort of promote being chaste um, is to is to live out our vocation ourselves to do that. Um, because even if we never tell anybody that we're doing that, there's always that opportunity for them to ask. There's like, you never know what's going to be broadcasted subconsciously by doing that. Um, and if, if we have failed at that, um, living out our vocation in that where, you know, we're living as somebody who's been forgiven, we might still have to deal with earthly consequences of it, but we still live and operate as somebody who has been forgiven. It's not this, you know, ball and chain that holds us down spiritually. It's something that has been forgiven. So I think that just living out your vocation, wherever you are with that, whether you're waiting, whether you did wait and you want your kids to wait, um, whether you didn't wait, but you've been forgiven, I think just living, um, is the best testimony that you can give to that. Um, because uh, if you are somebody who didn't wait, um, you can talk to your kids um, as they age and as they ask questions about the earthly and spiritually consequences of what you did, but that you are forgiven. And I would also bring up Romans 6, 1 through 2, um, where it's, you know, what shall we say then? Uh, shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? By no means. Um, I would absolutely bring that up because we don't want to say, well, since I'm going to be forgiven for this, I'm going to do it. Anyways. No, not that. Not that at all. Um, and I think, too, something that we maybe as parents and as spouses need to understand is we're never going to get anything completely perfect in this life. That's part of the problem of how we're here right now is they really, really wanted things to be perfect. Our parents didn't want us to get hurt. They wanted to do a pain avoidance approach so that we wouldn't have to deal with the things that they dealt with. But the thing is we live in a broken world. Even if we strive to do the very best we can with anything, whether it be balancing this, staying pure, whatever, we're not going to do it 100% perfect. And if we did, that would be a problem because then we wouldn't need Christ. So I think that living in grace and living in freedom is the best way to balance those things so that you're not constantly going, okay, how do I do this? I, what if I didn't do it right? Because that's kind of how we get to a place that, that's of legalism or that's of hyper grace because you can't handle that pressure. Mm -hmm. Simply living in your vocation is the best thing you can do, I think. That's really great. Um, what one person asked, why, why, why do you think um, purity culture is so heavily directed only at girls? Yeah. So I think this is an interesting question because I've gotten it a lot, <laughs> um, mostly privately by women who are just very irritated by this. What I will say is this. I think that this is actually false. I think it's directed at boys too, but I think we don't see that as much because it's in a more subversive way. Um, and I think that the reason that is, the reason that's directed so openly at girls is because on a societal level, so I'm going to kind of back away for a minute and just look at society as a whole. Girls are the sexual gatekeepers. Outside of rape, if a girl says no to a sexual encounter, sex isn't going to happen. Um, I mean, even if you want to say, well, there's porn, a woman said yes. Or a woman had that taken from her to have that image online. So women are 
basically the people that say yes or no to sex. If men want sex and they can't obtain it outside of a woman, then they're still going to go to pornography or, you know, which I'm not saying that they always do that. But if, if it's if it's somebody that's just bound and determined, they're going to go to pornography where a woman has said yes. It's just obviously a more, uh, <laughs> how do I want to put this? A uh, cowardly way to do it. <laughs> um, anyways, so since girls are the sexual gatekeepers, I think what people who sort of started purity culture thought was, okay, we see this. We see that they are the ones, they're the first line of defense in whether or not um, sexual immorality happens. Now, obviously, there's coercion. Obviously, there's manipulation and things like that. But if women aren't willing to have sex, for the most part, sex isn't going to happen. So I think that they said, okay, well, this is what we're going to focus on because girls ultimately, if the guy's not going to be a jerk about it and rape her, have the say in whether or not it's happening. So that's why I think it's more heavily directed at girls. Hmm. And one of the things, too, that I've heard over and over again, and I've seen a lot of reaction to this among our girls is this idea where the woman is responsible if the guy lusts mm -hmm. and um, you know, if a guy is lusting after you, then, then you are either not dressing or not behaving modestly enough. Yeah. I think that that's completely false. I think that obviously modesty is important. I think that we think about it in a completely unholistic way because it goes beyond dress. Um, and I've seen some arguments to say that modesty meant something different in the biblical passages that we read um, than it does today, where it's more of a flaunting of um of economic worth. So women who wore big jewelry with uh, expensive diamonds and things like that in it. I don't know if that's the case. That's something that I have heard though. And it's something that makes sense to me. Um, but I think with modesty and with lust, something that we need to understand is when I was a four-year-old, I could have dressed however I wanted. And the guy with the foot fetish, just because I wore sandals, would still lust after me. Is that my fault as a four-year-old? Absolutely not. Um, is it a child's fault that a pedophile goes after them when they're dressed completely normal? No, it's never a child's fault. A child never eggs on a pedophile, even though that pedophile is lusting. Lusting and modesty are not the correlation or causation that we think they are. Um, and I think that understanding that if a man is going to lust, he's going to do it regardless of what you wear, but it might be it might be harder for him depending on what you wear. I think that we kind of need to understand the nuance there and not not put the responsibility solely on the woman. Hmm. It makes me think of countries where women are completely covered. Yes. And women Rapes are treated still yeah, happens there. Women are treated horribly. And so it's hard to say if a woman is covered from literally head to toe. Yeah. How that could be her fault, you know, Absolutely. if she's attacked. Um, and, you know, Colleen and I have talked about this a little bit, just where we also see a pendulum swing too far in the other direction. Yes. Where um, modesty, like, it just in how we dress gets completely mm -hmm. thrown out. Like, yes. 
it doesn't matter what you wear. You can wear whatever you want um, in reaction to this. And that's that's not good. No, it's not. <laughs> that's not what we're saying at all. Yeah. And something that I, I, I can send this to you guys if you want, but my uh, – my uh, coworker at uh, Iron Ladies just put out an article. Uh, her name is Rachel, Darn Rachel Darnell that is about modesty. And it's one of the most well thought out, um, least inflammatory articles that I have seen on the subject in a very long time. And it talks about pushing modesty, not for the sake of protecting ourselves or protecting men, but because it's a dignity issue. And yeah. she talks about how, you know, they covered up her grandma, even though everybody had seen her naked because they'd all been taking care of her because they were protecting her dignity. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't, oh, we've, we've got to protect her or anything like that. No, it's a matter of respect. It's a matter of respecting your body. And something I will say too, is that I think that society as a whole really downplays the correlation between how a person feels about themselves and how they dress. I think this is completely subconscious and maybe that's why so many people deny it. But as an anorexic, I thought that my body was ugly. What did I do? I covered it up. I completely covered it up as much as possible. And it, it and the modesty rules that I had made it easy to do and easy to hide the anorexia because of that. Um, but somebody who doesn't value themselves, and I'm not saying this as like a, a blanket statement or anything. I've actually heard this from women um, who I'm close to. If they don't value themselves, if they think they're worthless because they went through a sexual assault or they had sex with their boyfriend or whatever, they will dress in less because they don't respect themselves and they don't feel like they're worthy of protection um, and not, or they, they don't feel like they're worthy of treating themselves with dignity is how I will say wow. it. Um, and so I think that something that we might teach our girls um, is that sometimes we subconsciously dress ourselves based on how we see ourselves. And I mm -hmm. think that that approaching it that way is infinitely more healthy than approaching it from you're constantly in danger. You have to protect yourself. You have to protect the man around you mm -hmm. because that's really scary for a child. Yeah. I remember being absolutely terrified all the time walking out of the house after the one friend was sexually assaulted because she was assaulted by her brother after wearing something that was completely appropriate and within the guidelines. So if the mm -hmm. guidelines can't protect us, then what can? Wow, that's terrifying. Yeah, um, I will link that. I read that article and it is excellent. I'm going to link that in the episode notes. But that yeah. and that is why even if it's not said right out, I've heard from so many women that when they were sexually assaulted, they felt like they must have done something wrong, that yeah. they were at fault somehow. Maybe they didn't dress modestly enough, especially when you have this men are animals that, that can't control themselves right um idea yeah when i've gotten to talk to my husband about it because it's it's been something that we've discussed literally all of our relationship where i've been like i need to understand this because right now i'm terrified to go outside <laughs> um and you know we've rehashed it so many times but the thing he tells me is if a guy wants to lust he's gonna lust like no matter what you're wearing if he wants to undress you with his eyes he'll do it um that's not something that you can necessarily control or prevent. Do you know, a couple of girls asked if there's any correlation between pornography addiction and purity culture. Oh my gosh, I love this question so much. I don't know who asked it, but you all are genius. Um, <laughs> my husband, when we were going over these questions last night, was like, that's 
that's a weird question. I can't imagine what they would mean by that. I know. I know the answer. Um, so I have a lot of men contact me um, because of the book and they tell me their stories and things like that. So I have a lot of anecdotal stories to suggest that pornography or uh, purity culture has fueled pornography use. And what I mean by that is sexually suppressed men tend to lean towards addiction, whether it's sex or pornography. And that's because while women, from what I've seen, obviously, there's a mixed bag there because some women do end up with sexual addiction and pornography addiction after trying after after going through this culture but for the most part i see women sort of repressing their sexuality whereas men tend to ramp up their sexuality when they're told no and it's not something that they consciously do but it's because they feel bad about the fact that they're sexual beings and that they have so many hormones going on and even if they try to wait and try not to do anything. Um, they can have nocturnal emissions and then they feel bad about that. There's so much shame that it points them towards pornography. So I believe that men who grew up in purity culture end up using pornography more than your average man um, who thinks that there's nothing wrong with it. And the reason I say that is because a Christian man addicted to pornography is going to feel bad about that usage and about his sexuality. And then to get more good hormones to make himself feel better, he's going to do it again and again and again. And then that just spirals. And it's an endless spiral of, I feel bad that I'm a sexual human being. Um, and that shame makes me believe that I'm bad. And if I'm bad, then I'm going to do this because everybody is probably thinking that I'm bad anyways. And so they use and then they feel bad and then they use again. So I, yes, I do believe that purity culture has affected pornography use. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought that was an in interesting question, um, yeah. but more than one person in our group actually asked me to ask you that. Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> I'm glad they, they think about this kind of thing. Cause I've never been asked this before. Um, another another question I thought was interesting is it says, can you talk about the damage it does to girls when they're taught that sex is a duty for a woman and a right for a man and how it's impossible to flip the sex is sin switch on your wedding day and suddenly want it and like it? Yeah. So what i will say is that this is damaging to women in that if a woman wants sex generally they think that they're weird because only men are supposed to want to have sex um and so they they end up feeling shame even more for their sexuality um than you know than you otherwise would in purity culture um and i i think it makes them resent their husband says, well, um, if sex is done right, obviously a woman should be enjoying herself. It shouldn't be a duty. Um, I think, though, that when we get married, even if we haven't been in purity culture, it takes a while for women to get sex down. And I think it does men, too. Um, but for us, you know, it might be longer depending on what happens and, and how knowledgeable the guy and you are. Um, but that sex is sin switch. It got stuck for a lot of us that came up in purity culture. And since it's classical conditioning, where you've been told sex is dirty, sex is dirty, sex is dirty. And even if you don't believe that, you still have that, oh, my stomach hurts, I'm a bad person response. Um, then we need to replace that sex is dirty with a positive thing and be patient with ourselves. Um, 
I recommend reading Song of Solomon. <laughs> um, and there's a couple other books that I've read that are good. One of them is Sheila Gregoire's um, Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. Um, and I think that we just need to surround ourselves with uh, messages of sex being good and learn how it works and how we can make things better. Um, and I think, too, that we need to be aware that some of the advice we're going to get is bad um, or is not the whole truth. Um, and I think that's part of part of how we get so many odd uh, beliefs about sex is because if you've had sex, then you have sort of an experience that you can't necessarily convey to somebody who hasn't had sex. I think some things get lost in translation. Um but I had some terrible advice um, when I was early married from like a Christian marriage group that was, you know, don't have sex if you don't feel like it or you're too tired or, you know, if you have any any reason why you might not want, want to have sex. Because if you do, then you're allowing your husband to sexually assault you. And while I think that it could be good advice um, if it was maybe worded differently, because you don't want to force yourself into having sex if you don't want to. Um, but for me, I I hadn't had any good experience with it. So it was, well, why would I want to do that? Of course, I don't want to do that. I, it, it makes me feel sick. And so I didn't I didn't try to push myself until well after I got that advice to actually try um, and practice and learn. Um, so instead of thinking of it as a learning process where, yeah, it's kind of uncomfortable. My muscles are a little bit sore, um, like if I was training for something. Um, instead of saying, but I'm, I'm going to take a rest and then work through it the next time, uh, I was being told, don't try it all because that's bad. Like, and, and it's, it's assault. <laughs> um, and so it really scared me <laughs> um, and freaked me out. And it, it really changed the way I thought about it to be sort of escalated. Um, but I think, I think that something to consider is just that a lot of us haven't been taught how to communicate um, when we get married. And so I think part of the training wheels of sex is learning to communicate when you're frustrated or when you're enjoying something to your husband. Um, and if you can't do that by, you know, actually standing in front of him and talking to him, I would say try writing him letters for the first stage of it. Um, where, you know, if you do feel like uh, sex is a sin and stuff like that, I would, I would literally just pour your heart out to each other. Um, and something too with the sex is a duty thing. Um, I think that a lot of husbands that, <sighs> that marry wives and, and if both of them or one of them comes out of purity culture, we all have the same language when it comes to sex. We all read the same books. We all heard the same talks. We had, you know, the same uh, leaders, thought leaders for the most part. And so when men, when our husbands get frustrated that we're not enjoying sex, um, sometimes they use language that's triggering to us, um, whether it's from uh, spiritual, emotional, or sexual abuse, um, because they they can say, you know, out of frustration, well, it's your job to have sex with me or something like that. And they don't mean that. They mean, you know, I want to have sex with you. This is how I show my love to you. This is what we're supposed to be doing as a married couple. What's wrong? But they say it as it's your job. So I think uh, if you are newly married or, you know, even if you're not, something to consider with all of this is that 
the the switch is very hard to flip, but I hope that some of these things will help and just understand that it might take a while for you to address the different things. Like with this in particular, um, it might take you both a while to address triggering words and it might be difficult for you guys to come up with a new healthier vocabulary um, to convey your needs and thoughts and what sex means to you each, uh, to each of you. And um, I think kind of being patient with each other and understanding um, the struggles of one another and listening is really one of the best things you can do to kind of get over this. Obviously, it's terrible that we ever have to deal with this because it should not be this complicated. Um, but there is ways there is ways to get over that switch. And while it might take a while, it is so worth it. And um, it is so worth trying to have that relationship with your spouse. Uh, another question that was asked that I feel like goes in line with what you were just saying is yeah. a girl said, I was taught that you had to give it whenever they wanted or they'd find it elsewhere. Oh. So <laughs> that kind of guilt and stuff, she's wondering um, just how how to think about that. Yeah. So you, you know what? Before you answer that, I actually saw something from a woman that has a pretty large following. And she said, if your husband is looking at other women, then you just need to make yourself look more attractive and seduce him. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. I'm not kidding you. Oh my gosh. Oh I, my I gosh. actually read something like that in a book by an author I won't name that I, I put down the book. <laughs> oh no. All right. So yeah. So that's just, mm. and you'll you'll notice that I I do catch myself saying some of these things because that is still in the vocabulary. That's still how things were taught to me. Is you know, uh, the hyperbolic: if men can't find sex with you, then they're going to find it elsewhere. It's not something to do with you, though. Like we can't compete with pixels. If they are looking at pornography, that is ob absolutely not your fault. You can't compete with that. Don't try. That is not. Like it's, it's a fundamentally different thing. So that is an addiction. Um, it's a spiritual issue as well, but it's an addiction and they are searching for something in that, that you can't offer because you're not an unhealthy substance. Okay. Um, so don't, don't try to be a porn star for your husband. That's no, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you want to dress up in a nice outfit and like do a strip tease or something, great. Go for you. Good for you. Go for it. But we can't, we can't compete with the other options. Like we can't compete with a stripper down the street. We can't compete with pornography. That's not our role and it's not meant to be our role. We are meant to be a wife, which means we might be super tired because our child woke us up at three o'clock in the morning and we might have to say, no, honey, I'm not feeling it, but let's reschedule for this time um, and be what he has asked you to be, which is his wife and the mother of his child. It is not fair for him to ask anything else of you. And it is not fair for somebody else to say that you should try to be anything else but that. We as wives are not super women. <laughs> um, we cannot always say yes. We cannot always be at our best. We cannot always have our hair and makeup and dress all done. Um, and we're not meant to. 
We're not meant to. That is too much to put on us. Some of us have jobs. Some of us have big houses to clean and children to take care of. And we only have so much energy and time in the day. Yes, we should be prioritizing our husbands. But if our husband is addicted to sex or addicted to pornography, we can't fix that. We are not clinically trained. We are not spiritually trained to fix that. And it's not our job to fix it. There are professionals who our husbands can go to and who should we, we should encourage them to go to. Um, sex counselors that are Christian, uh, psychiatrists, things like that. That's what they're there for. And if your husband is saying, you know, well, if you don't put out, then I'm going to go do something else. That's abuse. That is abuse. You should not take that. Um, I'm not saying you should, you know, move out that instant, but I'm saying you should say something to the effect of, okay, so we need to go get counseling or, you know, this needs to be addressed. Um, and I think that standing up for ourselves is one of the ways that we can show ourselves and our husbands that we do value and respect our bodies and our minds and that we also value them enough to say, I'm not going to let you mistreat me this way because our marriage is supposed to look like Christ in the church. And right now you're not being Christ-like. Yeah. And that one thing we've talked about is you, if your husband is in sin, he's your brother in Christ. You can confront him of that sin. Absolutely. And you should, it's not loving to not confront somebody if they're sinning right. like that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What do you think about purity rings? So maybe, maybe is what I think about them. Um, <laughs> my gut for me says no. I actually wore one um, and it caused a lot of uh, stress for me <laughs> because I lost it. And um, my coworkers, my secular coworkers would not let me go home without it. So we had to search the office for an hour because they were afraid of what would happen to me. Like if I would be, you know, physically abused or whichever, which my parents wouldn't have physically abused me for that. But, um, but it's, it can be kind of a big deal if you take it off for any reason, um, after you put it on. Um, and I think, I think for me, it's sort of akin to the Pharisees praying out loud or fasting and obviously in public, um, where it can be this showy thing, even if it's not, even if the person doesn't mean it to be, sometimes it can be. Um, and I think that that can be a downside for me to um, I see kind of wearing a purity ring at this point in my life in the same way I would see somebody posting their sexcapades on social media where there's this certain degree of propriety that we've lost with purity culture and I think it might be inappropriate um, we as Christians shouldn't really have to physically declare um, our purity with a purity ring the very fact that we are Christian should be sufficient um, but I, I do think some people are called to public testimony with purity rings. I just think that the vast majority of us are better off not doing that. But I'm not saying you can't wear a purity ring or you can. I'm just saying there's pros and cons to consider. Well, I know we're kind of, we've kept, kept you um, quite a while. I want to <laughs> tell, and um, this has been so helpful. And I can almost guarantee that there's people asking more questions. And that's why I'm going to link several of your podcast episodes, because I think you touch on the things that we've talked about here and even more. And you may find that she has um, talked about that very thing on one of her podcast episodes. 
And um, so look, I'm going to link a few that I think will be especially um, helpful in what we've been talking about here, but go and find Rebecca's podcast and look at all of the episodes. I've, I've been going through and listening to so many of them and it just, you've done such a great job and her book. Definitely. Um, I'm going to also link her book and I think, I think we can give away a copy of, of Ooh. your book. So <laughs> look for information on our Facebook or our Twitter and we'll, we'll give away a copy of your book um, to somebody. That's exciting. <laughs> um, so if you're interested in reading this book, definitely do that. And if you don't win, go and buy a copy. I bought a copy this week. So Rebecca, thank you so much for um, spending so much time with us. And yeah, absolutely. I, I enjoyed it. I was so excited to do this episode. This is one that I was more excited about than almost any other episode. <laughs> Well, we're, we just appreciate you coming on. I know the girls had so many, so many questions and I think this is going to be really helpful. So since this is a longer episode, we will not be doing a yeah about that this week, but I did want to let you know a few things. We are working hard on our new website. I don't know if it will be up at the release of this podcast, but it will be up this week. There will be a link though on all of our social media directly to this episode and the episode notes. So just keep an eye out and we will see you next week.